maybe we start this with you reading this little blurb here about Petaluma is to have a new playhouse, and we just kind of <coughs> oh, see what happens. I love this. Yeah. Um, are, are we on? Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. So, uh, Theater for Petaluma. This was a story that came out December 26th in 1903 in the San Francisco Dramatic Review. Petaluma is to have a new playhouse. Mrs. Josie P. Hill, widow of late William Hill and her son A.B. Hill, will build for Petaluma a modern, up-to-date theater. The sale was made last Thursday to a number of pieces of real estate which formed the site for the building. The lots have a frontage of 104 feet on Washington Street and 119.7 feet on Keller Street. The intention of the new owners is to erect a modern theater on the property at the cost of about 25000 bucks. That's a huge amount of money, $25,000. I don't even know where I'd get that right now. Anyway, yet I digress. Perhaps by the time it was ready for occupancy, that cost could have soared up to near $40,000. Eventually, the new building, when completed, may be given to the city. The Opera House is to be fitted with the most modern appurtenances and furnishings. It will front on Washington Street, and that will improve that part of town greatly. I know across the street... Was a brick, a brick building that uh, housed uh, um, rooms that you could rent up above, and I believe a hardware store below, and some sundries and stuff like that. And uh, some of my first memories of uh, this theater, when it was the California Theater, was that building just after they had torn it down, and it was the, just a big pile of bricks there for many years. And there was a little bit of the foundation I remember going up uh, the other side of Keller Street. Uh, Twenty-five thousand, by the way, in nineteen oh four. Yeah. Uh, according to this calculator uh, online, seven hundred twenty-six thousand dollars in twenty twenty. You know, which is not a bad deal. No. They they built it uh, economically. Now, when they brought it up to forty thousand dollars, that must have made it somewhere close to a million at that. Woof. All right. Well, welcome to uh, the danger zone. Welcome to yeah. uh, coronavirus. Uh, yeah. Welcome to living through history. Okay. Welcome to on quarantine. With Jim, With Jim and Tom. All right. Coronavirus. What's your take on this? <clears throat> Boy. Uh, it almost feels like it's kind of a reset. Uh, just all of a sudden, boom, everything is frozen. And I am amazed, really. Uh, we went on lockdown Tuesday night at midnight. Yeah. And I am amazed at how quickly this town really did lock down and how quickly the Bay Area is locked down. I, I would hazard maybe 90% of us are truly taking this thing seriously enough that our streets are pretty darn empty. Um, I liked it when the Phoenix kids were talking in front of you about if you got it, who would take over the Phoenix. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, all right, that's a weird thing. And I'm <laughs> and really, dudes, I'm standing right in front of you, if you don't mind. It just, and they're not the only ones, really. A bunch of my friends are saying, well, man, you know, we got to take care of this in case anything happens to me. What? What are we? Well, okay, well, I'm hoping it doesn't. I, I think if you, if you uh, allow yourself to be defeated, then, of course, you, you will be defeated. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm planning on sticking around for a while. What a good segue. If you allow yourself to be defeated, then you will be defeated. Yeah. Here we are in the Defiant Phoenix Theater. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, w- let's see. Well, we did one of these uh, three days ago. Yeah. And uh, oh. at, at midnight that night, it uh, w- went into effect yeah. uh, shelter in place. Shelter in place. Which means, effectively, um, this show is sort of on hiatus. Um, yeah. We're sheltering. Yeah. And so uh, we've, 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 Tom and I have been talking, and we've been thinking, like, uh, well, we still want to do this yeah, so uh absolutely. we're gonna we're gonna do some uh some different sort of formats we no video crew just he and i talking yeah six and feet apart tonight we're, you know really we're just kind of like looking into miscellaneous stories we haven't shared on here before or we've only touched on briefly some of these are phoenix related some of them are show related yeah. i think we have touched on this next one but we haven't touched on the other one and that is the kind of two times people have died in this building okay. one one came back to life in the doorway. Yeah. During a no means no show. That's okay. That's true. So let's let's go into that. Oh, and then the other one is more of a kind of a 
a bit of a, a folk tale. But let, let's start with this No Means No Show because it actually has to do with somebody who's very important to the soul of the Phoenix and also a, a great friend of yours. The, the kid that was, uh, yeah, that was, I'll, I'll call him Joel. I, I don't know how far. I love Joel. And, and he, was, he was a kid that spent a lot of time here. But uh, yeah, it was a great show. I think it was Victim's Family and No Means No. And we and the place was sold out. And in those days, uh, we could get uh, legally a thousand people in here. I'm sure we had a thousand people in here. This place was full. And uh, the pit was going off. The stage was going off. The bands, it was such a great night. One of the best lineups of bands you could ever see in your lifetime. And so we had gotten done. Victims had gotten done. All we had to do now was live through the headliners, No Means No, which was a smoking band. Uh, and all we had to do was get those guys on stage, and we were golden. Uh, my friend Joel, ha- apparently he was he was a kid in those days, was so high on drugs that uh, he was going out the uh, east uh, floor exit of the building just before the headliner was to go on, and he passed out halfway in the door and halfway out the door. Boom, down, could not revive him. We had to call an ambulance to find out what the hell had happened to Joel. And there he was, halfway in, halfway out. The ambulance came. Uh, just important note, Green Day was opening that show. It was Green Day Green Day, Day played first, and then uh, no, no Means No and Victim's Family. I don't know what the order exactly. But anyway, it was those wow. three bands. Yeah, we were waiting for the headliner to come on. I think it was No Means No was headlining. Yeah. And uh, what a show. All I needed to do was get the headliner on, which would have been an incredible show, and then get everybody the hell out of the building before it got any worse. Because it would have been, oh, what a night. Oh, I, you know, I. Oh. So here was the incredible thing. <laughs> yeah. Waiting for the headliner to go on, you, the consummate promoter, yeah. are like, we show must go on. Oh, well, show must go on. Joel yeah. must survive. Yeah, show well, must Joel, go yeah, on. Yeah, well, Joel's got to survive. And, and I'm sure that it, not once in my mind did I think Joel was going to die in that doorway, except the ambulance got here and they injected something into him to wake him up or bring him to, and he redlined. I remember those words. Oh, he's redlining. Whoa, shit. Now they're plugging that electric thing in with Joel. <laughs> and oh my God. And you have a thousand people in the building. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it really, it a, a really tough moment. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, well, it's so. All right, what's it going to take to to drag this dead guy out on the sidewalk and get this show started? Joel, damn it. Anyway, uh, luckily, he came to, son of a gun. And they uh, they put him on the gurney and took him to the hospital, and there was Joel, and we got to have the show. And he's still alive to this day. And he's absolutely still alive to this day and and doing quite well. Yeah, a father. Yeah, absolutely. He was a contractor when we talked about this last. I don't know if he still is. Yeah, because he he came by, uh, what... uh, Couple of months ago, several months ago, I think we we saw Joel, and he'll drop in every so often. And uh, oh, man, what a piece of history he is! There's no <laughs> doubt about it. All right, the other death. Do you remember the other death? Uh, well, are you talking about? You were not here, and it actually the building wasn't here right. either. That's what I thought you were talking about. That one, I maybe have a loose uh, agreement not to talk too much about it. Um. I we, I have always thought that there's something, somebody maybe, if you believe in ghosts, and if I had to believe in a ghost, I would think the big guy that occasionally walks across the stage, uh, and he's been heard by so many people over the years, uh, especially when it's late, when you're sleeping on the stage, you're sleeping somewhere in the building, and you hear the big footfalls coming across the stage, like somebody big is walking across, and... Uh, I've I've always been aware of him and and felt quite comfortable actually around that presence and I always thought well this guy if he were a ghost of the phoenix he would be a uh, maybe a stage manager or uh, one of the big stage hands uh, maybe working the uh, up in the up in the uh, fly area but uh, strangely a psychic from the Berkeley Psychic Institute came in one night uh, one day and said you know uh, you gotta Boy, you've got a really strange, you've got a very large energy up on your stage. And I think uh, he was an energy that was here before this was a theater. And I think if you looked, you'd find that this was probably a livery stable or something like that. And he was working in that stable. And uh, it was. That part he got. I don't, I don't know if a lot of people knew that, uh, that before the theater was here. Uh, it was kind of a livery stable. They built built wagons and serviced wagons and stuff like that. And I think boarded some horses and things. <laughs> so uh, the guy nailed that part of it. 
And uh, we, I, years ago, we named the big guy Chris. I can't remember. I do remember why, but he reminded me so much of, of a very large friend of mine named Chris. So we named Chris Chris. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and still people will, will talk about hearing somebody walking across the stage. And that would be Chris, if that is indeed what he is. I don't know if you want to go into this next thing, um, but again, as I was kind of thinking about what we include tonight, I was thinking about all all the stuff and people we haven't really talked about on here that are kind of essential to the soul of the building. Uh, sure. So not not Joel who died in the doorway, but yeah. a, but another Joel. Joel, oh Joel Cox. Yeah, Joel who is, yes, uh, absolutely. There's a, there's oh. a couple uh, tributes to him in the building. Oh yeah, all, all throughout the building. There, he was he was quite a special kid. That kid. Do you want to so, if you if you if yeah. you're willing and if you if you if you I'll do a quick one on Joel. Yeah, or whatever feels appropriate. Well, he was, uh, boy, he moved here from Arizona when he was in, I think ninth grade, and he found his way down here pretty quick. And that very first day. He was here. He was, uh, I'm working in the, uh, in the concession area, and I hear just the loudest kid in the world making noise in the hallway over here on the stage right side of the building. And I come walking over and say, what the, this kid, this is some loud, obnoxious kid with a very high voice, wanting everybody to see that he's here. And I, I find him breakdancing in the hallway there, <laughs> being loud and obnoxious. I think, oh, God. Great. This is good. Well, uh, he hung out most of the day, and at the end of the evening, just the evening was starting the end of the day, uh, I'm out cleaning up the parking lot out in back. It's a rainy day, and I'm cleaning some garbage out of some puddles and, and stuff like that and throwing stuff away, and he's back there. He joins me back there, and I find myself discussing physics with this kid. First time in the in the in the hallway, I had who, who are you? <laughs> and yeah, okay, great, great, I, yeah, wonderful. And I went back to work. Uh, now he joins me in the parking lot, and this kid is a, a, a bloody genius. Oh my God, the conversations that that uh, in the very first time I had a chance to really discuss with him, I had just who are you? Holy cow, who is this kid? <laughs> he got to be uh, just one of my favorite souls in this building, and and. Uh, Oh, what a special kid. We would have uh, breakfast uh, in his senior year in high school. We were doing breakfasts on Wednesdays. I think that's how his schedule worked. We could get together for uh, 11, uh, 11 o'clock breakfast, uh, and usually down at, uh, uh, oh, my gosh, tea room. There we go. Usually down at the tea room. And uh, it got to the point, Joel would call me up the night before and tell me what we were going to talk about so I would be prepared for the discussion. This kid was just oh, one of the smartest kids. Uh, he could be totally irreverent and totally out of his mind, totally loud and clumsy, or he could be one of the most skillful speakers, uh, one of the most thoughtful people you've ever met, one of the smartest, and one of the most inspirational. He, uh, he lived at 521 Baker with his mother. Joel held court uh, at that house, and uh, in his room, uh, it was... It was uh, a place where his friends would go and, and talk philosophy and go and talk uh, issues that teens would talk about and uh, boys and girls. And, and uh, just uh, he was an inspiration to study for most of his friends. Uh, he had uh, he had a habit of going on walkabouts and he would take a friend with them and they would walk maybe from here to Katadi and back in one walk just because uh, they would walk out to the old Adobe just because and back. They'd go on these long walkabouts and talk about all kinds of things, stuff that was important to his crew and his friends, and what a great crew he had. And out of the blue one day, he and, and maybe Cameron and one of his friends were walking by the Marine recruiters or the Army recruiters uh, over across the street from uh, Whole Foods, and there was a sign that said, we'll give you a free shirt if you come in and talk to us. So he went in and talked to them and got the free shirt, and son of a gun, if he didn't sign up... He was 18, and he signed up to go. And they came down to the theater that day and said, I just signed up to go into the Army. Whoa, what? That That's so weird. And he certainly would have uh, ended up uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq fighting. They would have, uh, they would have loved to have him. He, was, he would have been an incredible soldier. He was a very peaceful soul and a most incredibly beautiful soul. But uh, 
I think uh, the one thing about Joel is whatever the experience, he was in it. And uh, he would have been a great soldier. Uh, he was uh, at boot camp. And he was standing there, sitting in some bleachers, lacing up his shoes, getting ready to do a run. And uh, he uh, stood up and fell down and had had a heart attack that killed him immediately. And uh, it turns out that Joel had the same heart condition that his father had. It was a very, very small, undetectable hole in the heart that apparently was uh, one day set to blow. And uh, he knew this. Uh, and uh, weirdly, that... Uh, so we, the day he took off to go to the Army, it was a Wednesday. So we had breakfast at 11, and then he was going to go to his house where there was a... He went to his house where there was going to be a going-away party with him and his friends, and then he was off. And uh, we went to Tea Room, we had breakfast, and we were sitting in my truck. I dropped him off at his house, we looked at each other, and I said goodbye and there was that moment when I should have hugged him, and I did not, because I'm not a hugging guy. And that was the one, the one hug that I uh, absolutely regret not, not having. Um, he was, he was a good, good friend. He was only here for he was, he was like, uh, like Elton John's uh, uh, Maryland song. He was a candle in the wind. He was here to uh, drop a message to some people, leaving some important uh, plans, and uh, and then take off and. Uh, uh, through all of this, he left me a good friend. His mother, Allison, is is one of my favorite people in the world. And and uh, boy, Joel was oh, he he was a mover and a shaker in a lot of people's lives. And and uh, he still is. His friends still remember him. We still have the chair that was in his room uh, at five twenty one Baker back in our dressing room. And yeah, uh, I'll never forget Joel. And I tell his story all the time. We still have the article up on the wall of the box office. And and. Uh, I'll point that out to certain kids when I say, ah, oh, you need to know about Joel. His mother, Allison, is somebody I met through you. Yeah. And um, she wrote something in tribute to a man that she knew named Bill, who she credits to uh, really giving her some insight that kind of changed her life. And it's a little lengthy, but I'd like to read it because it's been something that has come back to me a lot. And um, we'll just see if it works here. So um, I'm, I'm cutting it down a lot, but here we go. Uh, Bill explained the concept of service to me. He told me that there would come a time when everything and everyone would fail me, the people, the program, even God, with whom Bill had issues and of whom Bill had doubts, although he was one of the most spiritual men I would ever meet. All of these things would fail me, he said, and the only thing that would save my life is saving someone else's, because in the end, the only life we really ever save is our own. He warned me that if service did not become second nature, I would not be able to fall back on it when the time came. So she goes on, she says, I, I watched and I learned, and service I did. Service in this different form sustained me through the death of my alcoholic father in my early sobriety, just at the point when I began through my own alcoholism and recovery to understand and forgive. Service sustained me through the collapse of my very brief marriage and the subsequent death of my ex-husband, who loved me with a depth of which I was incapable and who gave me a quirky, bright, and magnificent child. And one day, that time came for me, the day Bill was talking about, when it all collapses around your feet. On November 18th, 2003, as I was negotiating a faculty position in Arizona, my magnificent son, who had gone off to serve in the Army Reserves, suffered a sudden and fatal heart attack. My darkest hour had arrived, and sitting in a corner eating Valium had been taken off the table those many years ago. My only option was to go right to the center of it. She goes on to talk about how she turned down the faculty position, she joined the Peace Corps, yeah. and she went to Africa to do yes. HIV outreach and education. Oh, yes. Absolutely. She, she was sent to the country with the highest HIV prevalence in the world. 38.6% of the adult population was HIV positive. And um, uh, basically... What, what a woman. She, what a strong, strong individual Allison is. She's, she's really quite special. Because then I believe she also ended up in Tibet working with prostitutes for a period. This, uh, this was, I think, uh, she did some time in Afghanistan for a short period and, and, uh, work and that was where it really got dangerous for her. And she, I think had to end up leave leaving for her safety because uh, she was an advocate for women in, in a country that does not, uh, allow, allow women advocacy, I think. All right. Last, last tribute one I want to do. This one is, is very personal and I understand if you don't want to do it, uh, but Nate, Nate Reifers. Because uh, I, I bring, well, and we can talk about both, but Nate Reifers is what I'm talking about. And yeah. uh, 
I think that he influenced you personally probably more than most people that you meet. It's uh, it's uh, Nate was uh, one of the uh, one of the most important moments I had down at the theater, and he was only ten years old at the time, and we were a movie theater, but we also had uh, video games all over the building, and uh, and. Nate was a quarter grabber. You got a quarter, give me a quarter, give me a quarter. So, and he was loud and obnoxious and he was 10 years old. And uh, it was a busy night. We were having a movie and stuff was going on. I had people all over the building and Nate was just on my heels. Hey, can I get a quarter? Can I get a quarter? Can I get a quarter? And I give him a quarter and he'd come be back, right, right back at me. He was on top of me the whole time. Finally, I turn around and go, Nate, I don't have time for this. I'm busy right now and I don't have time for this. And I turned around and got about two steps away, and it's like, boom. It's like somebody kind of slapped me in the back of the head and said, whoa, what are you doing? Did you just tell a kid that you don't have time for him? And uh, and he was still standing there when I turned around. I said, oh, yeah, that was well, that was tight. And I really need to. He taught me to get out of myself, and it's a speech that I'll give a lot of kids. I turned around and, and uh, said, oh, fuck, Nate. Look, here's the deal. I am really busy, but I always, I promise you, if you need me, you can always tell me I need you uh, and uh, you, you need to get out of yourself so that I can have a moment with you. And uh, that's an important lesson that I think uh, I, uh, that I got to learn it, and I'm glad I did. Everybody should. Uh, you're so, we get so into our moments and, and our lives and the things we need to get done. Sometimes you, you don't notice when somebody is saying, I need to have a moment with you. I need your, I need your, your words. I need just your attention. And it's a need. It's not a want, and it's not frivolous. It's something that is truly needed. And uh, that's the best thing you can do is just turn around and be there in that moment for whoever that is, uh, a loved one, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, uh, a kid, uh, somebody you work with. Um, there are times where if you can remember just to get out of yourself for a moment and turn around, and Nate taught me that at that moment, and I never forgot it. And I use that speech a lot when there's a kid that seems like, uh, yeah, this kid is going to need to have a little... Is going to need to know that there is somebody that will turn around and talk if you need them. But not just kids. There's a lot of adults out there that need this as well. And you have to remember to do the same thing if you can. It's such a hectic and busy world. How much of yourself did you see in that 10-year-old Nate? <laughs> well, I grew up on West Street. Nate grew up on uh, Howard Street. And I ask only because I feel like as a child you sort of had that same thing. I was, I was a loud and obnoxious kid. I really was. I know that now. I, uh, boy, what I would do for attention at times. I only bring it up because you, you and I, when we've had, uh, you know, been on the same team doing battle against local yep. officials, um, oh, yeah. there will be times when, you know, you feel as if you're not being listened to either by them or by me. Yeah. And you're like, you know, it's important that you acknowledge that because oh, right. because you say, you know, like when when yeah. you when that is something that happens to you when you're younger. I, I know plenty of people. This is like um, it, it, it almost takes you back there. It, it does. Yeah. You know that. Well, gee, I can't remember the last incident was uh, the stairs over there. And uh, when I was done, finally talking to one of the guys at the city, he told me, look, we're going to we're going to accept it just like that. But you got to promise me you're not going to call me anymore. Oh my God! I driven that guy crazy. Little do they know, it's the best weapon you have in your arsenal. Yeah, it's, I, the, it's the they won't listen to this. It's, <laughs> it's the like tire them out from having to deal with you, so they just leave you alone. Oh man, yeah, he, he basically okay, fine. That's gonna be fine. Just don't call me again. Let's come back to Nate in a second. What, what's your, what's your like favorite showdown with uh, authorities over the last thirty years? Oh. Gee, I'd have to. I got. I, I like the one. So I like the one when we had a. Uh, we had a rave. Not a rave. It was like a dance, and yeah. and uh, there was a certain officer who was accusing us of certain things, and you poked him in his chest, and you were like, uh, uh, "Fuck you!" And you called him by his first name. Oh, Don't tell me how to write from my theater. Yeah, I, well, I got that a lot. Yeah. Oh my god, there was one time. I don't even know what show it was. 
Jeez, it had been, uh, it was in the middle of the 90s somewhere, and we just had a sold-out show that, of course, while it was sold out inside the Phoenix, it was also sold out in the neighborhood. It just, the whole neighborhood was involved in all of the big shows we did here. And finally, one night when it was all over and all done, and everybody was out the building, uh, the police came crashing in about something, and the thing that they complained the most about was I was sitting in my office with my feet up on my desk. But this was, I mean, holy shit. These things would start at like 2 in the afternoon when the bands would load in, and the building was already full of kids and people, and the neighborhood was already jumping. And then we'd load in and do sound checks, and my God, we'd, <laughs> we'd have the show. And the blood and the fights and the pits and the stage diving. Oh, my God. I wish everybody in the world could live through a moment of what I got to live. What an honor. What a, what an incredible experience it was to live through some of those things. It was absolute pandemonium. But we'd had anywhere from 1,000 to 900 people in this building on the sold-out <laughs> Good show. Good direction. Don't go the other one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and to, uh, depending on what the, what the legal limit was at the time. Yeah. And... Boy, I mean, 99% of those people had the time of their lives. That's the weird thing about Green Day. Of all the tunes that I love of theirs, that's my favorite tune of theirs because it sounds like I felt at the end of some of those shows. I hope you had the time of your life. And uh, it's such a mellow song for Green Day. But when they wrote it, it was like I, I heard that song. And I realized, oh, my God, that's how I feel at the end of all of these shows. When it's an incredible show, uh, you finally have that quieter moment. And it's still got melody and, and harmony, and it's still a tune. The whole show, any show you do is a tune. Oh, my God, the energy, the, oh, gosh, the sounds, the smells, what you see, the visuals. It's just like this whole onslaught of, but it's really like this major tune just being blown out. If the roof wasn't on, phew, it'd all be blown straight out the roof, and it probably is. And at the end of it, you get this quiet moment where you can finally look back on it and say, oh, I hope you had the time of your life. It was, uh, it's, and I've never been able to tell Billy Joel about it because I haven't really seen him since then. <laughs> but that would be what I tell him. Geez, you wrote one of the coolest tunes. You know when I get that feeling when I do a show here? It's when the building is finally closed and the, the tour bus is gone, the fans are gone, there's, there's trash all over the place, yes. but they're still in the building. Yes, there's that. Yes, that's still moment in the building. And so there I was, the police came in and I had my feet up on, the, on, on my desk and one of them made some kind of a comment. I go, and I'm like, you know what? By the end of the night, by tomorrow morning, this entire street's going to be clean, and you wouldn't even know we did this show by the time I'm done. And it was true, because I would start <laughs> all the way down at Western Avenue and clean from Western to Washington. I'd clean the parking garage. I cleaned the parking lot at the at the market. Uh, then I would go up to the corner of, of uh, uh, Liberty and Washington, and I'd go all the way back behind the market and come this way and pick up all the bottles and all that and then clean all the way down. It would take me an additional two hours after every show or better, and that was with some people helping, although I did it the best. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and yeah, I, I remember that particularly contentious discussion and that, oh, fuck you. Uh, I, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. You know, Look, it's we a, have a great police department and we always did. We actually, we get along great with everybody now. We just have pockets where we don't. Uh, we're not blaming anyone. Things happen. We're, we're, uh, we were, look, we were in the middle of downtown Petaluma, a semi, well, no, it was never a quiet town. When I was a kid, this was not a quiet downtown, but here we were in small town Petaluma on a corner, uh, being louder than anybody has a right to be. And, uh, we managed th this town as much as, as angry as we made them. They did let us keep doing it. Let's go back to Nate. Nate Reifers. So we, we learned about uh, origin story, 10 years old. He's grabbing quarters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he, he ended he up, said, well, I, we, we, I, I had to put him to work here because it was just, there was no getting rid of him. Yeah. He was, and he really became, over the years, oh, became, yeah, my best friend. That kid, uh, he was he was here for a long time and, and, uh, and just, uh, he was, again, I, he was a crew leader. He would get people going. He uh, became, uh, he was a rebel and a rabble rouser and, uh, just out for the adventure. This kid lived the adventure for a short period when he was a kid. I think he was living on, on the roof of a dentist's uh, 
Uh, it was a couple blocks from where he lived, but he was living on the roof of, of a dentist building next door to the 7-Eleven up the street. <laughs> and that was his spot. Uh, some kids, when he was in junior high, uh, some of the older kids came to me and said, Tom, you really, you got to have a talk with Nate. What? Well, he's selling porn now at the junior. <laughs> oh, God. Good, Nate. <laughs> Can I get a cut of that? No. <laughs> anyway, Nate was just uh, uh, that kid. He was also out to make... Uh, Make a buck, but make it legal. Well, not legally. <clears throat> well, that, that came a little later. Um, yep. But so even as a teenager, you considered him a close friend and kind of a yeah. peer. Yeah, and yeah, and he became a peer quicker than than not. And then strangely, yeah. And and you and by the by the end of your friendship, one of your best friends. Yeah. Oh yes. And, and so so he was he was a presence here. Um, anything else that you want to share before we get to you know, boy, <laughs> this kid, whatever he was doing. He was doing to the max. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, this story starts, well, it starts when he was a kid, but I mean, his, the final of this story starts best we could tell from his friends and experiences. He was at a party uh, in the mountains above Santa Cruz, and it was a psychedelic party. And Nate was pretty certain that he was at this party uh, with uh, Beelzebub, with Satan. And uh, the story went that he made a deal. Uh, he wanted to be one of the most successful growers up in Mendocino. And uh, phew, through sheer tenacity and quick wit, uh, I will say he became, best I can tell from what I hear, a very, very successful businessman up north and highly regarded highly respected by everybody that he ever came into contact and worked with and very quickly uh, became very successful uh he introduced me to the band devil makes three he'd seen them at the forestville club and said you got to get these guys in here and we had them several times, and uh, he always had a party somewhere in the area because he was living up in Mendocino at, the, at this point. He would bring his friends down, his whole crew down. They'd have this big party in town, and then they'd come and see the show. And uh, uh, that was... Uh, he, he was in town uh, jamming with some friends and recording some stuff, and they recorded this rap and Nate said in this rap, I'm going to be leaving, and I'm, I want you guys to check in on my daughter and, and, and keep up and, and uh, make sure she's, she's okay. I didn't hear this rap until after, after he had uh, passed. And Nate was in town with his friends and his crew uh, to see a Devil Makes Three show at the Phoenix Theater. And uh, he, uh, the show was over, and I didn't see him go. So I didn't get to say what I always say, you know, be safe out there. And uh, he went downtown with some friends. He saw um, another friend of his actually get stabbed down on Pedlone Boulevard by someone he did not know. So Nate and his buddies gave chase on the guy who had stabbed their friend and caught up with him behind a seared restaurant. It was, I think, uh, it was a different restaurant in those days. And... Uh, Caught up with him behind the restaurant, and uh, as he was running up, the guy apparently just stuck his knife out, and Nate kind of ran into the to the knife, and uh, he got him. He nicked him in the heart. So Nate uh, Nate uh, died on uh, right behind uh, uh, on Water Street, behind the restaurant on Water Street, and um, that was a tough one. I again. Normally, I would he would not get out of the building without me making uh, some note. I was busy that night, and I didn't see Nate as he as he left. And uh, that was uh, would have been the last time I saw him. I met him when I was busy, and I lost him when I was busy. <laughs> Just first time I made that connection. Nate Rifers. Oof. Uh, he had, uh, and then all these stories about all these things. I had no idea about the, the party in Santa Cruz, but I heard about it when we were all having a memorial for him up at the Usal River. And uh, uh, the connection with coming to see Devil Makes Three, 
for his last show. It just, wow. It uh, certainly, in its weird way, makes you look back and wonder what what is real in this world and what is possible in this world and uh, what... Uh, wow. Yeah, that was that was a, that was quite a story with Nate, and uh, and I'll always miss him to the day I die. Uh, here's the deal, <clears throat> you know, like I say, I think uh, I've always said, as you know, that I intend to come back and do another adventure, and I'm thinking, so if that's the way it went, I could pretty much tell you, I don't know if I'd be willing to go back and have an adventure in Nate's next life because I think at this point he was ready to jump out to something. I mean, who knows? Maybe he was going to go be Alexander in the next life. You know, tough to tell, but I don't know if I want to be second on that trip. I'll see him in a mellower time. And I don't know if this is too much, but he was also there for you if this had gone away at the Phoenix, right? I mean, he had a place yeah, for you. He, he, had a, he, yeah, he was he pretty had a, much like, he did. He, if it goes away, if the Phoenix goes away, thing you've dedicated a lot of your time to, yeah. don't worry, you'll be taken care of. He had a, he had a plan for a project we were going to do, absolutely, yeah. which, you know, I'll leave that on the table. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it actually Nate had uh, yeah, had it kind of worked out. When it looked like we were going to lose the theater, he came to me with a plan that really uh, would have been wonderful to a degree. But uh, it was the Phoenix. It always is the Phoenix for me. Uh, another one that I love that we've never talked about on this show is uh, when the birds premiered here. Uh, we haven't talked about that. Um, I mean, if we have, it was 150 episodes ago. Well, I was about, uh, what, seven years old, and uh, I had come to see that. It was a big thing. So they filmed, uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock filmed the birds in the town of Bodega and also uh, in the town of Bodega Bay and, and quite a bit of and, and the surrounding countryside and in other locations, but mostly filmed here, actually in Santa Rosa as well. So uh, they did a series of premieres, and one of the premieres they did was here in this theater, and it was, I think, in 1962, and I was very young, and, uh, but a lot of people from the city came, and it was uh, uh, the mayor spoke, and, and uh, all kind of luminaries spoke, and there were a few people from the movie itself, and it was a big opening, and I came with neighbors. I wasn't with my family, uh, and... Uh, I think I was sitting in, in a, uh, uh, I think I had an aisle seat, and it was just about three quarters up the uh, uh, the stage left side of the building. And what had happened was they finally start the movie, and the movie's going on, and some high school kids uh, had snuck down to the river, and we all used to do this when we were kids, go down and, and uh, go under the docks uh, along Water Street there and catch pigeons. So some high school kids had gone under the docks, uh, caught some pigeons and brought them up here, snuck them in and released them during the film. Now, truthfully, I didn't see the pigeons. I had no idea what people had gotten up and I kind of got bumped out into the aisle and they, and uh, I, I started crying and I know they took me out. And for a while, a couple people identified me, I think all the way through... Uh, uh, Valley Vista, I was recognized by, boy, I feel like it was Don Palladini. You're one of those guys. You're the kid that was crying at the movie. So I, I had that hanging over my head through about fourth or fifth or sixth grade. <laughs> yeah, that was my first memory, really, of, of the Phoenix Theater. It was the uh, California Theater in those days. If you search uh, the birds premiere on Google, one of the culprits who released those birds has an article. His name is Richard Benbrook. Yes, Richard Ben. He and I have talked about it since then. Absolutely. He was, he's an author, a local author, and a local poet, and he had spoken here several times. Absolutely. A great guy, Richard. Let's do a little, uh, little lightning round. These are some kind of like B-side stories, some of which I've heard from you, some of which I've been a part of. That I, they're not like fully formed, but they're just fun little moments. Okay. Um, let's start with uh, when Guar played here. I believe you got put in a wood chipper. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got thrown into the. Uh, oh, they spewed my guts out. It was a uh, meat grinder. They had me go into the meat grinder, and there was Slimenser down there. I, they kind of they huddled around me and then pushed me up this thing that I kind of climbed. And boom, and they pushed me down into it. And then there was yeah, and then I got let out the back. But they actually, I didn't. Uh, what had happened? I don't remember much about how this all came together, but they ended up grinding me and spewing my guts out on the all over the audience. Uh, 
And uh, I'm just glad that I came back in one piece. Uh, here's a fun fact. This is not even a full story, just a fun piece of information. CKY did a show here in yes. 2009. Bam Margera was in attendance That's because true. his brother is in that band. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, he met who would end up being his wife. Yeah, absolutely. A Petaluma girl. Yeah, absolutely. At that, yeah. What fun. That's true. And uh, they named their son Phoenix, who was in skating um, not long ago, actually. Uh, maybe last year. They, uh, they kind of brought him in. He was very young, maybe two years old. But uh, they kind of uh, put him on a skateboard and, and uh, ran him around the building. Uh, here's a fun one I love. Um, exhibit played here Exhibit, yes he and did. i believe there's a story about the settlement of that show that was exhibit was a new york guy and i never really i didn't think much about the east coast west coast uh hip-hop uh, uh brawl <clears throat> but there was a lot of tension between east coast hip-hop at that time and west coast hip-hoppers and uh, their uh exhibits manager first off they they showed up they were all packing uh, exhibits manager uh, made us uh, said what uh, uh, he was the next uh, New York cop and right off the bat he goes where, where, where are you pat searching nobody's pat searching no we use ones no you don't use ones everybody gets touched before they come in here you they made us stop the door run everybody back outside and pat search everybody coming in that's how serious this guy was uh, then it came time to pay him and it was cash and at the end of the night and he insisted that we uh, uh, do the deal in the in their Escalade in the back parking lot. Yeah, and the first thing he did, uh, so I got on the passenger side. He gets in. He pulls his pistol out of his holster and sets it in front of him uh, on the dashboard. <laughs> and uh, so I'm counting the money out with him and the uh, and the pistol. And the <clears throat> yeah, that was that was quite a scene. It was a great show. Another hip hop show that uh, you, we didn't do here, but you were in attendance, was in Redway, California, at the Mateel Center. Yeah, to show me and Dan Jalot did. It was guy the do a lot Wu-Tang of Wu Tang Clan. Wu Tang Clan. Yeah, and um, I love just again not a full story, just like a funny thing. Uh, Method Man broke his foot in San Francisco the night before. Yeah, so I was asked by the tour manager to bring a wheelchair. Yeah. Uh, oh we were asked God. to get a certain type of champagne, which was $100 a bottle, of course. and no one Bevmo had it, so we had to go to a bunch of different ones. <sighs> they just uh, sprayed the audience with that champagne after we ended up getting there. Yes, and uh, maybe the funniest thing for me about that show is that I was billed as Wu-Tang Clan. We bought Wu-Tang Clan, yeah. but uh, Jizza and Ghostface did not show up, <sighs> and Dan Jalot says to me, hey, it's all white people in there. They're just going to throw a couple other guys on the stage and no one will notice. No one will notice. And 100%, eight or 900 people, yeah. not a single complaint that no. Jizza and Ghostface no. were not there. Yeah, it's true. Was, oh, my gosh. We got we ended up with Jizza here, didn't we? We did. That's another not full story, but just like a funny little piece of information. Was that? He was doing the Liquid Swords tour. Uh, weirdly, I remember that date. That was August 23rd, 2008. And... Um, well, I mean, this was you and me. Um, was this the one? Where, this was the one where he was at a hotel in yes, Novato. And yeah. what, what did he have? He, had, he was eating. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, these guys were, I mean, come on. They're Wu-Tang Clan. They're from New York. These guys are all about 420 and getting high, I think. And uh, son of a gun, he got into some edibles and before the show. And maybe he was not used to that because I remember one of the guys in the back said, it was, it was damn lollipops. What? And so he got, uh, this is what I assume, I think. And what I had heard was Jizza had gotten so stoned it was, <laughs> that he was too paranoid to come out of the hotel room. So it took a long time to get him here. The hotel room that I was outside the door of waiting for him to come because, of course, we have to get done at 12. Oh, yeah. And now we're a half hour away in, in Novato. Yeah. It's 11 p.m. He's yeah. still not out the door. No. He does get out eventually. He was not in a great mood. We no. we got him here. I think he played all of 30 minutes, maybe a little more. Yes, but he he would come on stage and do a little bit into the mic, and then he'd get paranoid and go backstage for a while and kind of hang out. We had, you know, a baby got back. Who was the guy that does it? Oh, um, 
I think that was like right when I started doing shows. Uh, Sir Mix a Lot. Sir Mix a Lot. I did yeah. not do that show, by the way. No, no. But it was, you know what? I've always liked Sir Mix a Lot shows. But for some reason, I think he had gotten his bus repossessed at the hotel across town. Yeah. And he was almost refusing to show up. He didn't want to leave his hotel room. And the promoter was having a hard time because this, again, it was a hip hop crowd. And, I, and we need to have this show go off. We need the headliner on now. Sometimes, I mean, in the case of Too Short, all I needed was just one song. <laughs> I mean, Too Short showed up so late that one time, we only got one song out of him. he showed up like at 1 or 2 a.m. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we'd been holding and holding and holding, and it was getting tense, and, and people were irritable, but nobody was leaving until, first off, God only knows where the money was at that point. So I don't know how much, how many people get their money back. And uh, we needed that guy on. And uh, he showed up and played one song and everybody was happy and left. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Hip-hop shows, man. They can, you know, they are some of the greatest shows you can ever attend. Let's, we've made history with some of those. But at the same time, it can get a little, little weird. So in my hand here, speaking of hip-hop shows, I have a letter from the city of Petaluma Police Department written to you on October 16th, 1996. And uh, I'm going to read some excerpts. It's, uh, this was at a time before Petaluma got desensitized to having hip-hop. This is when it was still kind of new. Uh, Dear Tom, the purpose of this letter is to express the police department's concern about a proposed concert at the Phoenix featuring rap artist, quote, Drew Down. Drew it down. is my understanding from the promoter, Lamar Walker, that you are very supportive of this event. We are concerned about the event for the following reasons. Um, let's see. I'm going to skip over a lot of this. Uh, I like this one a lot. Number two, the, quote, gangster rap, end quote, or, quote, hip hop end quote, venue is expected to attract gang members from outside the Petaluma area. <laughs> um, pa- past, quote, hip-hop events at other establishments have resu- resulted in fighting in near-riot situations. Um, it's um, <laughs> the name of the artist, quote, drew down, end quote, is suggestive of firearms use. So yeah, it, I- it's funny um, how much times have changed. They have, but, you know, and, and but it's not like we didn't think of that. And this is one of the... Uh, one of those things that I'm really sorry that I turned down. There were a couple of shows that I turned down that I wished I never had. And one of them was uh, NWA. But I was, I, I, they were having issues at some of their shows. It was our, my one chance to get, uh, oh my God, some of the greatest musicians uh, ever to come from the LA area. Really, that was just, that was a band of powerful minds, powerful players and, and uh, producers and writers. What a band. NWA, uh, one of the greatest bands ever to grace the stage, I think. And uh, so we finally had our moment, and we were offered the show. And I actually allowed my I got talked out of it. Even people who were uh, heavy uh, hip-hop people, were there was stuff going on at their shows that just kept making the papers. And so we had our chance, and, and I turned it down because I was a chicken shit. And I'm so sorry I did. I still see echoes from that decision in your decisions now. You really don't like to be bullied out of doing shows. No, I do not. Whether it's yeah. by the mob online yeah. or whether it's by the authorities. That's true. We've had this happen twice now in the oh, last year. yeah, that last one with talk. Was it talk? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, T-A-A-K-E. T-A-A-K-E. This is a uh, black band out of Norway. and holy Black metal God. band. Black metal band. Black metal right, band. Yeah. Black metal band out of Norway. And... Uh, Whoa, what they do, it's its mostly from the mind of one player and writer. And what they and he creates uh, is some of the darkest music you'll ever hear. And I'm not a huge dark guy, but when you see somebody do something so well, uh, capture that moment so precisely and so well, and Talk does that, you can check them out online. They've got a couple tunes that just are, I wanted this band here. It was dark, it was well executed, um, it was going to be not promoted by us. It was going to be pr- promoted by an outside promoter. Yeah. The tour was ultimately shelved because uh, various chapters or groups or people who were Antifa activists yeah. campaigned to stop it because... So he appeared at a show in Germany uh, several years ago, and he had drawn a swastika on his chest. And uh, his statement about that was, yeah, of course I did. I was in Germany. I felt it was absolutely appropriate. These, this, he was very clear about how he hates everyone and everything in most cases. And in this case, he was in Germany. And he said, oh, we were in Germany. I felt it was appropriate to rub their noses in it. 
and uh, he was ushered off the stage and thrown out of the country. That was 10 years ago. He's had several successful tours since then. And uh, but he said, I want to be very clear. Uh, I hate uh, I hate Nazis. I hate Catholics. I hate Jews. I hate Protestants. Uh, I hate you. Uh, we hate everybody. Uh, they are the consummate nihilists, I think, in, in one manner. And uh, and what and he did it so perfectly. I get it. Uh, his shtick or not shtick. His art uh, is around hate. And quite frankly, there's a lot of that out there. And I think having that rubbed in our faces is not a bad thing. But when it's done as masterfully as what I felt they were capable of doing, this guy is a genius. And if you're looking for a good example of of, uh, dark black Norwegian black metal, uh, check out Talk, Take, however you pronounce it. But because of the incident in Germany... He had many, many years after this. Uh, it, it came out, came back online. Uh, a crew of Antifa took uh, took up the cause and said, "We will not have this man perform in in this country." And they went uh, club after club and and had this thing shut down. And I'm sorry, we didn't do that. I think just for the freedom to do that in a country that needs to have these freedoms, uh, I I would have you know. And you're the one that said, "Are you willing to die on this hill?" And and uh, you know, I'm stupid enough that I might be I yeah i mean it's complicated because it you did you did a lot of research on it you and i are a I little really different did. on this stuff where my thing is you know in the era that we live in especially 2017 where you know i mean a, a, a big amount of attention is paid to a band like this we would have only had we probably wouldn't have had 100 people in here that well, exactly it's just my my take is usually like it kind of doesn't matter what the facts of this particular matter are uh yeah. it seems like it's more trouble than it's worth this was uh, i don't think he was being frivolous with it i don't think he was doing it uh, i think he was truly doing it because this is uh, uh the art form that he uh, that he uses to uh, communicate and uh you could not deny those guys were great players it's a it's a very powerful band very powerful stuff, at least in my mind. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'm a total idiot. But uh, I really wanted to do that show, and I'm sorry we didn't. He, they weren't. They were just to be clear. They were not espousing Nazism. Uh, he was quite clear that no, of course not. We hate Nazis. What? You're kidding, right? I mean, we were in Germany. I took the opportunity to do that because the Germans are assholes too. Yeah. In fact, your understanding Norway, was it was because they were in that country that they did. Yeah, yeah. He was there. And he was he was doing it to be a total jerk. Yeah, and uh, he did it so well. Well, and I bring that, that one up. Height of um, and I also am thinking of uh, just like what six months ago we did a show with somebody, and we had different chapters of police coming down on us because there had allegedly been some complaints about the show we were oh going to do. Heavens. It really yeah. make you feel nervous when you have uh, yeah. all all of basically the authority that you know has control over whether you operate yeah. telling you. Um, we can't shut your show down, but we're telling you that something's probably going to happen in your show, so you should cancel it. But you don't have to. But if something happens, yeah. there's going to be real trouble We've for you. We've warned you, and it's all on you. Look, uh, it started with a rumor down in one of the bars in on Kentucky Street, and I didn't know. I, the, the police told me, uh, we've been having gang problems with some of these bars downtown. So we've got this one uh, hip-hop act coming in, and somebody at one of the bars said, no, this guy is, is in prison right now. And uh, there's going to be a hit out on him as soon as he's going to be the first show since he got out of prison. And there's going to be a hit on him. And, and uh, well, you know, then you got to go back and study his history and all that. This was all uh, this was an incident. It was about an incident and a scene that he was going through oh, almost five or six years ago. He'd also had several tours since then. And, and uh, that whole issue had died down. But there was the stigma behind it. And uh uh, the show just wasn't even selling that well. The The bars in downtown Petaluma had gotten themselves into such a lather over it that they were pretty sure they were going to close down that night uh, because they didn't want to put up with our crowd afterwards. And I'll tell you, uh, the way that show ended up going, I will say this was one of the meanest, toughest-looking group of 14-year-old girls I've, I've ever had in this building. Holy cow, what an audience. I can understand why the bars were so afraid of them. Whoa, 
It was spooky stuff, <clears throat> or not. You talk about the 90s. You you really look back fondly on the 90s. Yeah. And uh, we live in such a different moment now. I look, you know, one of my favorite analogies or metaphors or whatever is uh, when you were in the old days in the 90s, uh, I was too cheap and I hated uh, having barricades, really. Uh, something, our stage is a little bit low uh, in standard stage sizes. And so our audience is right on top of the band almost. And there's a really strong connection that can happen between the band and the audience when it's this close. And when there's not a, uh, a barricade and the bands are okay with stage diving or just whatever, and when they're not. I mean, there were many times that we would have to be traffic cops on the front of the stage. And there would be a guy stage right, guy stage left, and a guy crouched down in the stage center. And uh, you'd have a band up here playing incredible stuff uh, and just blowing all this energy. Their whole scene is, is what, that's what they're here to do, is send this energy out at the audience. And they're doing it well. And they're feeding off of uh, the 500 people that are on the floor in front of them. And then the other 300 people that might be up in the, in the, old, in the old days. Uh, now it's 700 people. But they're feeding off of the energy that's coming right back at them from this audience that's down pitting and uh, <laughs> stage diving if they can, trying to get on stage, going through the pit, puking, fighting, laughing. I mean, wow, just getting off on the band. And if you're in between those, if you're on the stage uh, trying to mitigate uh, between the crowd and the band, I think you're at one of the most powerful points to be. Uh, the energy level right there, it's where both those energies meet. The band putting it out and the audience putting it in. And you're right there sucking all of it up and trying to keep your wits about you while this is going on so that nobody gets hurt on stage mostly. You've got a bunch of equipment up here and you don't, you want to make sure. And then if the band was okay with it, you would be trying to direct people to get up on the stage and helping them get off. And that's just, wow, oh, what a very powerful place to be at one of the greatest moments in mankind's history. Uh, these people are all having a great time and will look back fondly. This is the height of culture. Uh, there are people that are, you know, that uh, like other things. What, what do you mean culture? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. What a moment in American culture. What a moment in rock and roll culture. What a moment in history. And you get to be right at the point of that moment. Uh, and, whoa, you can't beat it. Oh, oh, the energy. Oh, I love the 90s. The 90s were a different time. But you still sometimes get a glimpse of that magic here. And... uh when the story so far played here. Stay off the equipment for crying out loud. You guys are some of the worst motherfucking stage divers I've ever seen. I've never seen a bunch of them here. So mellow out on the equipment, assholes. Oh, just an incredible moment. Okay. Incredible moment. The story so far played here in uh, 2014. Yeah, that was a great yeah, yeah. that was a fun night. Yeah, yeah. And and the band was so patient. Oh, they loved it. They <laughs> they was a bunch they of loved kids. watching you yell at the crowd because the crowd was not stage diving. Oh man, that well. the, the the crowd was so rude and 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 uh, just thoughtless. I mean, even in the old days, the old punk days. But you know what? In the 90s, half the audience were the band's best friends so everybody was kind of good with the equipment and and they were skillful but yeah that i remember that night the the stage divers were young and inexperienced and they would just like stumble onto the stage and trip over cables and monitors and microphones and holy cow what a mess yeah it was that was a night but it was a great night that's true it it harkened back it was just sloppy <laughs> That's what we like. That's what we do down here. Yeah. I think we'll kind of wrap our program up there. Um, hey, I mean, Don't we, be sloppy on the stage. Well, well please don't. Yeah. I, I think we'll be doing some more of these. I, I want to I wanna do like a third Petaluma History episode. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, that's it, that time has come. There's, there's a book we could do that behind, and, and that would work really great. You know, I'd, I'd love to do an episode on The Sampsons. Oh. Uh, that, I mean, look, I... <clears throat> This, you know, is, this is a very notorious Petaluma family. Absolutely, but there's so much story there, and uh, I think they were, uh, I think they were deeper than than most people would ever give them. They are, without a shadow of a doubt, 
very important Petaluma characters. Yes. Oh, Wild yes. Petaluma characters. Yes. This family, just to give you a preview, uh, if you're excited in such things, I believe tried to firebomb the mayor's car. Well, the mayor's car, they, they firebombed the school that she was a principal out at, Two Rock Elementary School. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, at least... Yeah, I, th- I do believe somebody went to jail for that. Yeah, and they uh, they like tried to what do different militia type things or what? Yeah, they, they had the posse comitatus. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So they, I mean, th- this is a, a family yeah, think, that, that uh, still the, has some remnants. The patriarch left in was running for I think ran for mayor in Petaluma, but I th- believe also ran for uh, 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 the House of Representatives. They're, yeah, what a family. There, there's just a lot of like areas of interest that I, I, I'd like to zoom in on with these, just you and me talking, because sure. there's, a, there's a lot to talk about. This town is, like I think, every town must have its stories, but boy, has this town got a lot of stories. It really does. Yeah. So we'll do some more of this stuff um, as long as we are on quarantine. Who knows oh, yeah. how long this is going to last? It may last Months? There is just no telling. Here we are. What is the date? Is it uh, March 20th? March 20th. And really, I have no idea when we're going to be able to get back to normal uh, here at the theater, uh, in this town, and in this country, really. Whoa. This, Whoa. This is the edge of history we're looking over. There, yeah. There is not a person alive today who could tell you what life's going to be like in a month, what it's going to be like in six months. It's true. No one has any idea. And, and honestly... I don't know if in my entire life there's been a moment of such unpredictability as the moment that we're in right now. Not, not quite like this. And, uh, yeah, we'll do it again. Cool. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you. Stay off the equipment for crying out loud. You guys are some of the worst motherfucking stage divers I've ever seen. I've seen a bunch of them here. So mellow out on the equipment, assholes. <laughs>